cervix to the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapists Emma Brockwell and Gronya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myth on all things pelvic health. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to At Your Cervix, the podcast. And I'm delighted to have Christina Prevet, or should that be Dr. Christina Prevet, with us today. Um, it's taken a while for us to actually get this conversation going because there's been life moves and different things. But for anyone who hasn't heard of Christina, in terms of her bio, I'm going to make a, an attempt here because she actually didn't send me her bio. I'm just going to out her in, in public here. But Christina is a fabulous physical therapist. I was about to say from the US, but you're actually Canadian and has recently relocated back to Canada. And you have completed your PhD, which I'll let you describe and get into in a moment. But I connected with you in the pelvic health world. You're doing a lot of really good things for women in pregnancy, postpartum, particularly when it comes to weightlifting, strength training and pushing our limits. And I'm super excited. You also are the creator and founder of Barbell's Mama. Is that how, am I saying that right? Um, which I'm going to again let you tell our listeners about as well. So look, I'm handing the bio over to you because you didn't send me it. So go, Christina, go. <laughs> so um, I just have different areas of research. We're going to be talking in the pelvic health, but my PhD dissertation was in high load resistance training with at-risk older adults. So I kind of started in the geriatric space where we see a lot of times this under dosage concept. So when we're thinking about resistance training, we have to apply a particular amount of stress, a sufficient amount of stress to a system in order for it to get stronger. And what we see in our geriatric population is that oftentimes there's a lot of fear of pushing that intensity. And if we aren't pushing that intensity, we cannot realistically think that we are gonna drive musculoskeletal adaptation. Am I talking about the clinicians? Yeah, clinicians and also general public. We have a lot of varied listeners, but everyone wants to hear it. Everyone wants to hear what you Okay. Okay. So then when I kind of got into the pelvic health space with my own kiddos, like I ran uh, part of my PhD was to do a scoping review of where there is evidence to support PTs and health and wellness, like in this primary secondary prevention space. Geriatrics came up and we had a business model that did a lot of bridge from PT to gym in the geriatric space. But another area that came up was this pre-postnatal space. And it was something that I was kind of interested in. I hadn't had kiddos yet, but we hired somebody and myself, we did a postnatal return to exercise program. And then life happened and I got pregnant. I was weightlifting at the time. So the clean and jerk and the snatch and was competing in weightlifting, which I continued to do throughout my pregnancy. And I competed in a weightlifting meet during the, my pregnancy with my first daughter. Like I've kind of gone through the gamut of uh, powerlifting and weightlifting, CrossFit. I've done it pregnant. I've done it postpartum. I've done it both. And um, we've seen a lot of people during that time for my life, they were saying things like, you're going to prolapse. You're going to ruin your pelvic floor. Your baby is going to die. When you, when your baby dies, don't come screaming to the internet. Literally a comment that I got. And I created this almost like research side hustle. I kind of call it where I did this pivot to looking at resistance training during pregnancy. And what do we know? And I reached out to Margie Davenport. I know who has been on the podcast. And she was so wonderful to just like answer this random PT who was like, I have this research question that has nothing to do with the work that I'm currently doing for my PhD, but I really want to collaborate on. And we did a study that looked at heavy resistance training during pregnancy and tried to just begin the conversation around exploring outcomes. And what we saw was compared to national averages, we saw lower rates of hypertensive syndromes, which we would assume would be true with any individual who is more active during their pregnancy, risk goes down. We didn't see an increased risk of a lot of pelvic floor dysfunctions. There was a 57% of individuals experienced incontinence postpartum. And we can chat about that because there's a really good reason and people kind of ding us on that study for that. But I think there's a lack of understanding of what that means. And prolapse symptoms were very low. So we're starting to see, okay, this maybe isn't dangerous. Like the first thing is we need to see the people who go against the recommendation of don't lift more than 20 pounds. And then what happens to them? What happens to baby? And now that we're seeing this bigger co and growing cohort of people who want to be lifting during their pregnancy, want to keep doing CrossFit during their pregnancy, now we need to serve them 
And the only way we can serve them is by getting more information. And so kind of next steps has been, you know, getting a, a good idea of the state of the literature. We're working on a systematic review right now on resistance training during pregnancy. And if you want to see me get onto a soapbox about that, you should see the prescriptions. I thought it was bad in geriatrics. It's legitimately worse in oh our pregnant people. Seated exercises, stair bands to a max of 1.8 kilos, um, using Clubs. dumbbells. <laughs> yeah, and 80% of their one rep max, but the max that they could go was four kilos. Like literally, like I'm like reading these and I'm I'm Cringing. messaging Margie and being like, are we serious? Right now? <laughs> and it's, you know what? It, it, it makes a lot of sense because it's such a protected time and it hasn't been you know, that much time where, where people have been saying, you know, I really want to keep pushing during my pregnancy. And so, you know, I kind of poke fun, but they got us started. And now, now we need to keep the ball rolling and we need to start pushing a little bit more into some intensity. Wow, that's fascinating. It's actually really, really interesting to hear your segue. And because there's actually some comparables to those specialist populations, because they're both being underprescribed, underserved, under understood um, and it's interesting because the reason that those restrictions and that those um, exercise prescription protocols that you're highlighting and cringing at exist is not because they, anything higher than that has been proven to be unsafe it's just that it hasn't been investigated so we're literally it's the blind leading the blind until people like you come along and start to investigate and see and you know, even the work that Margie's done in other areas, we've seen how exercise prescription guidelines have really opened up and we started to challenge some of the contraindications and things, which has been fantastic. So it's really exciting to see that in terms of strength training that this is going to follow suit because it's a really hard area too, because for any women out there who are symptomatic of prolapse, a lot of times, again, how we perceive that activity is going to influence the activity and how we experience it too so it's really hard because there'll be women out there who have prolapsed and are thinking no but I know that if I lift anything over this I feel my symptoms or they get worse what can we say to that because I'm all into we need research but we need to bridge it how do we get it so that it makes sense to the public yeah so a couple of things I'm going to go research and then I'm going to go clinician and I'm going to try and bridge them so we do have now a couple of studies that are looking at the acute effects of resistance training and high intensity on pelvic floor and pelvic floor related outcomes so uh, Ingrid Nygaard and Janet Shaw posted uh, published a study with their group in 2016 that took individuals who are regular crossfitters and those who participated in non-strenuous exercise and then looked at uh, vaginal descent and pelvic floor muscle strength pre and post uh, that strenuous versus non-strenuous exercise. And these individuals in the strenuous group had were had never had children. So it's nulliparous individuals. Is, do you say nulliparous or nulliparous? I, I, I say nulliparous, but I say all these things like I say diastasis, but then sometimes I say diastasis. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, right. I'm making we're it. Just, we're just going to go back and forth and just say it the same way. Um, nulliparous. So these are individuals who had never had kids, but they, uh, or had never been pregnant, given birth, and had been doing CrossFit for on average about two years. And the interesting thing was that pre-exercise, there was no difference in vaginal descent or pelvic floor muscle strengthening or between the strenuous and non-strenuous groups. So one assumption that we often say is that if you are lifting weight, you are gonna see potentially a prolapse. And this study, um, it was only like 35 individuals, but that's pretty big for like trying to, like 70 individuals to bring into a study like this. Um, there was no differences there, which is interesting from an objective perspective, rates of subjective prolapse. There was only one individual in the strenuous group that felt subjective symptoms. And then post strenuous versus non-strenuous exercise, there was no difference between the groups. Um, but there was a difference between their pre and post. So we saw that maybe fatigue is an aspect of that. Um, and so then Carrie Bowe's group just did a study that just came out literally this month. Um, we're, we're recording this in August of 2023 that was looking at the acute effects of strength training. So she wasn't looking at the CrossFit side. So they, the Ingrid and uh, Shaw's group did, Ingrid Igard and Janet Shaw's group did an AMRAP, so a 20-minute AMRAP with heavy deadlifts and sit-ups, but at a, a high cardiovascular intensity. Carrie Bowe's group did uh, 75 to 80% of their one max for a squat and a deadlift 
with reps in reserve between one and three, and they saw no differences when, a, when they were comparing to a rest group versus a exercise group on pelvic floor muscle strength pre and post. So that kind of goes against some of the fatigue arguments. So I think that there's still a lot that we need to learn when it comes to what is actually happening physiologically and what do we need to set alarm bells off on versus what we don't. And then the clinician in me is seeing all this kind of objective to subjective discontent where individuals will feel that heaviness symptom with a grade one and some of them won't feel that heaviness symptom with a grade three or grade four you know there's a lot of this this like it's not one-to-one and so then I'm treating the symptom right I'm trying to figure out where their thresholds are get them sub threshold accumulate strength below where that threshold is teach them management strategies when they are at that threshold and trying to bring that fear response down because, you know, sometimes I joke with my clients, like, I'm actually trying to elicit those symptoms because I don't know where your strength thresholds are until I push into them. And so it's not something for us to be afraid of, but rather something that gives us really valuable information. And then where that threshold is, is going to change as you get further postpartum, as you stop nursing, as you gain more like impact tolerance, as you gain more strength, as you do this, as you do that, as your kids get older, you know, all of these things. Um, I think can can help the clinician like we get this information but then as a clinician we're treating the symptom and we want to make sure that we're not eliciting the fear alarm bells and I think that's where as pelvic PTs we can go wrong we can be the ones creating alarm bells and sensitizing a person's pelvis when for example postpartum we know that we're going to feel more anterior posterior movement of the perennial body when they're lifting weights that's a normal response and we see that after a vaginal delivery. And so we don't want to make that into a pathology when really it's a change to the postpartum body that we would expect to see. Yeah, I love I'm, that. I went on a long so No, I like that because I like the research hat. And then I liked you bringing it because I do think that there's such a disconnect between research and clinical practice at times. And I do think that... Um, it's, it, and that's one of the issues with the, that translation and that application of research and practice, because we're not talking the same language and we're not understanding the nuances of either side. So you go from research with really controlled environments where you can control for all these other um, covariant uh, co-variables where then clinic practice we can't we can't say oh you know you can't come in oh you've got that as well as this <laughs> no you can't come in my clinic today and um, so we have to be able to have real world application of research and that's what I love I think that you describe it really well and bring it really well and it's interesting because I know that paper I was only aware recently I'm working with Carrie on a paper about pelvic floor recovery and that's one of the things that we're trying to highlight was that really the research isn't there regarding the risk of strenuous activity but the thing that she was highlighting is that we don't have any long-term data. So we need the long, long-term long studies over time to see um, what that does. But you're right, because when we think about the normal physiological changes that happen and that there is going to be more distensibility in that perennial body for anyone who's delivered via vaginal births, real life and being a mom involves lifting. Like, you know, so we lift kids and they get heavier, but we don't just lift kids. We lift kids and car seats and all their tools and anything they have and their bike and whatever. And so we need to be fit and we need to be conditioning women for strength training. And I'm sure that's that's right up your street. Yeah. And I, you know, the hard part about age, and honestly, I have a research crush on Carrie Bow, if I'm going to be honest. Like the fact <laughs> that you doesn't. said that you're collaborating. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> but the hard part is that is like for example let's talk about vaginal descent as individuals transition through menopause and they get into a estrogen low state we're going to see again natural history of aging is that there is going to be a decline in or there's going to be a, a increase in descent because our all of our ligaments around our pelvis are not going to have that same estrogen rich environment that that's normal. Like it's a part of the normal physiology. And we know that for, so kind of putting my aging research hat on is that there's never a moment in our life where we say that being weaker is going to lead to better outcomes, right? In, in our aging world, like clinically relevant amounts of muscular weakness is a clinical geriatric syndrome linked to all these adverse health events, right? Like we, when we don't have the strength, we cannot withstand stress. 
And that stress can be the flu when we are older. And it can lead individuals in a hospital where they're spending more time than they need to in ICU beds and in hospital where they're going to get further deconditioning. And so I think we have to be mindful of that as well, where even if there is an increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction, for example, for individuals who are lifting heavy weights, we need to weigh that against what it means if we purposely decondition individuals in their midlife when they should be gaining as much peak muscle mass as possible so that they can hold on to it for as long as possible. Like I want to create strong moms, but my goal is also to create really strong grandmas. Like I really want... Like I want both and it needs to take this lifespan approach to it. And so, you know, when we look at athletes, for example, we know that there's an increased risk of injury for anybody who is pushing their limit, right? Like we don't say you shouldn't participate in the FIFA World Cup because there's an increased risk of knee injuries if you're a professional soccer player versus if you weren't. But we do say that for people who have pelvic issues, right? Oh, well, you're having pelvic issues with lifting heavy weights. Like you shouldn't be lifting anything that's strenuous anymore. And again, like there's this conversation that has to happen where, yes, we recognize that maybe for individuals who are pushing their limits more, pelvic floor issues can come up more more commonly. But that doesn't mean we say don't do it. It means that we have PTs like you who we refer to to help manage those issues. So I just think that there needs to be a really big shift in our, our thoughts and as healthcare providers, as pelvic PTs, away from the fear focus messages and how do we bridge that to empowerment focus with an understanding of where your navigational buoys are for individuals with pelvic floor dysfunction. So my mind's going too many places, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners, I'm sure if anyone's like me, you have 10 million questions. <laughs> off the back of what you just said first before I forget because I meant to mention this at the beginning I'm glad you mentioned the FIFA World Cup because I'm sure everyone's wondering where's Emma where is she today <laughs> Emma is busy being an awesome rock star physio at the she was down at the FIFA World Cup she actually attended the final and she was with Margaret Davenport Michelle Lyons she needed for all the people who've been on the podcast before so yeah the, there was the dream team of them there because they're doing a lot of work to try and advance female health and all the considerations for it so shout out to them and Emma will be back um but um but we just needed to get this conversation going um my other things that I was thinking of when you were talking were you're right about the fact that you know there's often a fear in clinical practice of like and um, pushing and testing to the point of provocation of symptoms when it comes to pelvic health, but yet any other area of rehab we work in, we test to that fence. So pain, we, we nudge into pain to find where's their limit, how are they tolerating it? Um, you know, strength deficits, everything goes to the point of limitation. So you're right, that's really interesting to highlight. And what I would say is, even when I think of my evolution as a physiotherapist, I was definitely way more um, cautious and things when I came out, but that was what I was conditioned to and taught to. And then it's kind of like when we start getting these rich conversations and start thinking about different things that we start pushing those boundaries. So it's a really, really, really exciting time. But there was something, oh yes, you mentioned about lower estrogen states. So would you, for anyone who's at the perinatal phase of life and who are lactating or breastfeeding, would you say that that accounts to them as well? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about kind of our lifespan, right, we have these big fluctuations in hormones, and we see an increase in pelvic issues with those fluctuations. So adolescence, pregnancy are both high estrogen states, and then postpartum is low. And then perimenopause, we're getting into lower estrogen states. And so we don't have a ton of research around exercise in lactating individuals who are in low estrogen states. But we do see a mirroring to this kind of genital urinary syndrome that we see during menopause, right? We see hot flashes and hot flushes. There's a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, I get night sweats when I'm early postpartum. We see that there's a dip in bone mineral density for individuals who have been lactating and that takes about 18 months to recover from uh, delivery day or D-day all the way to 18 months postpartum. So we are seeing that the impact of low estrogen is more transient, obviously, in that postpartum phase, because you're not staying low estrogen for a long period of time where you are in menopause. But there is some comparison between those two. And, you know, it, it makes sense to why some people feel like they have more support around their vaginal walls after they stop nursing. Again, we don't have any any research, but I, I know clinically I've seen it. I've talked to other PTs who've said the same thing. Um, so it is 
interesting. You know, a lot of people do, this is kind of a side, but people say that, oh, you're just going to drop all your weight because you're nursing. I was like the opposite is that as soon as I stopped nursing, it was like, whoosh, body weight went back down and I held on to more when I was lactating. So it's funny that we see Different people on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. It that. just shows how individual everybody is and how we do have to consider that individual in front of us. It's something I see clinically and I'd like your thoughts on this. Um, particularly in those phases of whether they're at the pain natal or perimenopausal phases of life because of that lower estrogen state and the I suppose associated dryness that can come with the tissues even if it's only marginally drier than what their baseline is I find that women are much more acutely aware of their vagina and everything because like normally like for a, a public service announcement to everyone because people are often shocked at this in clinic um, your vagina is not sitting there as an open cavity ready to be poked it, it is actually a closed cavity and the walls actually touch each other and just like the way they're able to stretch in childbirth they're made of lots of like folded up tissues so there's lots of lumps and bumps but we don't really feel it and we're not aware of our vagina and yet tissues are touching each other and I do think that that lower estrogen state does give us that awareness of a bit more friction or something and suddenly we become more acutely zoned in and then we're like hey what's that and then we go googling and then suddenly we oh my goodness I have a prolapse and then we feel it in every movement we're doing would you see, do you know of any evidence in relation to that? Or do you see that clinically yourself, Christina? Uh, clinically, yes. Evidence, no. Okay. No, I, I don't know if that exists. But no, absolutely, <laughs> we see that, right? We see that individuals are, are more aware. And even in the postpartum period, you're you're zoned in because you're recovering from an injury. You know, that heaviness around the vaginal opening, we, we can have it as a prolapse symptoms, but it's also a, a muscle fatigue symptom too and and that education is powerful right like you wouldn't go through a big leg workout and not feel your quad muscles kind of humming after when you're doing walk when you're walking around after a baby your pelvic floor is your weak point so your pelvic floor is humming and you're feeling it when it's fatigued and that's when is our sign like okay i've pushed it enough today i need to do a rest period and then push into it again and then, yeah, in that low estrogen state, there's that awareness because you're recovering. And then there's that awareness of what the tissues feel that, that is different than the way that the tissues felt before. And people aren't told what those differences are going to be or what the, they should expect as kind of a quote unquote normal sensation to feel. And so everything feels off. And then, you know, we go to a clinician who can sometimes scare us more and say, well, this is this and this is that. And it doesn't matter what way you spin it. If you say prolapse and people start Googling, like personally, if, if I don't have a person directly ask, especially in the first six weeks, I'm not really even talking about grades of prolapse or, or those types of things because we know that there's so much recovery. My, my conversation is everything is still healing. Like you just had stitches taken out. Like let's, let's parking lot that conversation if you're okay with parking lotting it because there's so much that's going to change still as you're healing in that early postpartum period. And um, yeah, the sooner we can get individuals into our doors is to start helping navigate that messaging, I think the better because we can really change the trajectory. I've had people reach out to me on social media with grade one prolapses using a pessary and still feeling it and just hyper, hyper aware. And, you know, I question, you know, where did that hyper awareness come from? Absolutely. And I think that's a really, really important point to raise. And again, there's so many crossovers in other areas. We've lots of evidence in pain science about, um, I suppose, the um, neuromodulation and the biosocial influence of it. And I do see so many comparables when it comes to particularly prolapse and those sensations. Um, but the other thing is that we don't have baseline data, like many things in, when it comes to female health. We don't know, like, you know, we're not we're all as diverse as the next person when we you know if we think of how we hold ourselves or symmetry everything's different and there's no such thing as the right way or wrong way and we don't know that someone may have had a grade one cervix descent before going in and having their pregnancy and so they could be at their baseline but suddenly they go for a smear down the line they're told oh you have descent of the cervix that's probably since your delivery and suddenly it feeds that narrative and so I do think there's a lot of education to be had and even normalizing particularly grade one um, descent because I've had four vagina deliveries. I have to, science tells me that there's at least grade one descent. There's bound to be more. Who knows? 
yeah. Well, and you know, I even think grade one to grade two, grade zero to grade one, grade two is in the realm of normal. I kind of will, will compare it to like hamstring length. I was like, you're going to have some people who have more range of motion and you're going to have some people who have less. And some people who have a lot of range of motion get low back pain. And some people who are really stiff get low back pain, right? So really like it's all within the realm of normal, but it's who gets, if somebody gets low back pains really stiff, we're probably going to try and increase the range of motion a little bit. If we have somebody who's really flexible, who gets low back pain, we're probably going to try and increase that stability a little bit. If we try and link that back to prolapse, we're not going to be changing the vaginal wall range of motion, but we're going to be desensitizing that system and have like having support around that system. So it doesn't bother you as much. Love it. And what are your thoughts, Christina, on the likes of strategies that we implement? So like, you know, we often hear of the likes of, right, okay, so someone is symptomatic with, say, doing their deadlifts or heavy lifting, they use a Valsalva strategy or a breath hold. Do you modify and then test what it's like if they're breathing or what does that look like for you? Yeah. So the first thing that I'm going to do is see how they are bracing, right? A lot of times individuals are told to inhale all their air and then bear down. Um, and you know, because our male counterparts, they just don't have the same rates of pelvic floor dysfunction. Like the worst thing they're going to do is pass wind on you in the bottom of the <laughs> squat, or they're going to get hemorrhoids. And that's going to be something that's going to be a little bit alarming the next time they try and have a bowel movement. Um, but, you know, 50% of our females will lift or leak with heavy lifting. And I think part of it has to go right from the very beginning to how they're being coached around racing, because we don't want to be bearing down because that's going to put all of that energy or all of that pressure down towards the pelvic floor. We want to distribute that pressure across all of the sides of our core canister. We have our diaphragm into your abdominal wall, our multifidi, all of our stabilizers in our posterior um, chain, and then we have our pelvic floor. And so that downward pressure is like pushing in the middle of a balloon, right? It'll just start popping out of the bottom and that's where we can pee. So we teach breathing strategies first. Like we're not going to remove the Valsalva until I figured out that you're bracing the right way. So you're getting to inhale and then I get them. So my moms, I tell them to flex like they're a toddler with about to jump on their belly, right? Cause they, that instant, like hit the, you know, you're kind of, you're going to tighten up your rib cage is going to stack over your pelvis and you're going to brace the right way. Or, you know, the hug your baby when you're pregnant or like someone's going to give you like a little punch to the stomach. Yes. That those are kind of my cues that I use for bracing. And then I'm going to see, I'm going to get you to do it again and see if that changed any of your symptoms. If that didn't, then we can use a variety of different breath strategies that act as like a pressure gauge, right? So I think about it as your body needs to be ready for the pressure that you're applying on the system. And that pressure is the strength of your brace times the amount of load on your bar. So that the combination of the two is the out of pressure and your body has to be ready for that. And if your pelvic floor can't keep sealed with that pressure, then we need to use strategies to bring that down. So below where your threshold of symptoms are, accumulate and then push into the, that weight again. And so that can be bringing the weight on the bar down and keeping Valsalva constant, or that can be releasing pressure by exhaling on exertion or not bracing as hard with the lift. And so depending on how in tuned your athlete is with their ability to maneuver with those types of cueing, you can start getting them to not brace down as hard. You can get them to just hold their breath without, you know, actively being at or as being as active with that brace, or you can get them to exhale on the hardest part of the movement and, and then see where their symptoms are. But that does not mean that I do not get them to Valsalva ever again. There's that's where the nuance is, is I may bring them down for a little bit and then I'm going to push into Valsalva again once we've done some work on, you know, clearing up their coordination, looking at their strength of some of their supporting musculature, all those types of things and fixing some of their bracing if there was an issue there and then we're going to push into it. Um, a lot of people have this negative perception of Valsalva when it is important to know that when you're over 80%, you transient, transiently Valsalva, whether you're trying to override it or not. You know, I, again, my Jerry hat, if a person is using their hands and having to get momentum to get up out of their seat, they're Valsalvaing every single time because they, they need that. Valsalva increases all of our core musculature. It keeps our spine more stiff. It allows us to lift more weight. It is a performance aid 
that we use. And if you're working with individuals in strength-based sports, or you're working with really deconditioned individuals, whether they're in the perinatal space or elsewhere, they may need it. They may, there are, there are so many moms who are valsalving to carry that car seat because it's heavy and you're going to see them hold their breath and <laughs> you see them as they're walking because it, it is a lot of strain. They're valsalving. We just don't think about that- it. I'm gonna um I'm gonna snippet that for you. That would be one of your um short snippets that I'll use in this podcast because I think that's a, such an important point. But I love the fact that you linked it across your areas of specialism, and it's interesting because I'm so interested to follow what Christina Previtt will do because you're in this really nice area of understanding that you're going to be able to like you're going to be able to do that lifespan approach within a pelvic health on. Like it's, it's, I know, smart girl. <laughs> like I love it, but um, no, I'm really, really interested because that's what we need to do because we keep just micro focusing on one small part of people and populations, and then we then once we start to gain some degree of understanding them, but then we don't know what happens next. So we just need to take these lifespan approaches, which is fantastic. And um, I love the fact that you talked about regression to then progress back because that's the principles of rehab in anywhere and again another nuance to the pelvic health world where we take them away and never implement them back again and so it's all these things and funny in a totally different context I had a post-operative gynae surgery patient recently who told me that their consultant now they're repair this stage but their consultant told them never to lift beyond four kilograms ever again in their life and I was like for their whole for your whole life or like just not just now no not 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 just now for your life so and it's really hard narrative to change because I'm not sure what the system is like where you are but certainly when the consultant says something it's like something knows and they're up here and yes they did the surgery and they do know what they did and whatever but the principle do they know the principles of strength and conditioning and rehabilitation principles I'm not so sure that that's their hot spot so sometimes I'm like oh we have to undo all this we have to teach people mm-hmm. so what speak preach yeah so I think the first thing is that these blanket statements in post pelvic surgery, they show that they reduce quality of life and increase a fear in fear of movement. And that's not just in the pelvic space. We see it, for example, in hip and knee replacements where those guidelines actually don't do anything. They don't change their post-operative complication rates and just increase kinesiophobia or fear of movement. When we look at the post pelvic um, guidelines that those six weeks, when they compare it to graded exposure, giving navigational buoys, the ones that get graded exposure and educate on what are the things to look out for that's telling you you're pushing your body too far and just take it, you know, one day at a time and don't overdo it at the very beginning, they do better. So I think, you know, we talk about taking this individualized approach in healthcare. It makes sense. Why would a blanket statement work for both people? Like, of course, there's going to be tissue healing. But, you know, 20 years ago, after a knee replacement, we told you that you should stay in bed for five days. And now we realize that you should be up that day. And they literally took a black and decker to your knee and cut off a piece of it. And you can, you can stand up that day. Right. And we see in the C-section, like when after C-section, if individuals who walk more in the, that early phase, like walk more being relative, not walking marathons, but getting up the same day have lower rates of postpartum postoperative complications after a C-section, we're seeing it in the pelvic space. So the way that I tend to go about it is saying, you know, what your surgeon is thinking about is your complication, right? Right. He's thinking about what might land you in hospital, all those types of things. And he did his assessment based on him seeing you this day. And my space is your function. Like my space isn't the the stitches. It's not that part. It's what is your quality of life look like? What does your function want to look like? And how do I bridge you to that? And so outside of the medical space, you know, m- based on my assessment today, this is what I think you're capable of. And then I try and bridge being like, okay, well, how much does your dog weigh? Do you ever have to carry your dog? And the dog's like 15 pounds. So I was like, okay, so now we're already over four kilos and you can't not lift your dog. If there's a person who's a dog that's coming after, you're going to lift your dog up or how much does your grandkid weigh or how much does, you know, and if you go and start are you going to weigh your groceries and make sure that they're less than four kilos as you're carrying? Like that's just one gallon of milk. That's a lot of trips back and forth. You know, like when you start kind of thinking about, Oh, like I'm already doing this, that kind of maybe doesn't make that much sense. It's, it's powerful. I mean like, Oh, okay. Like maybe I can just like inch it. Um, yeah. That's kind of the way that I try and go. So I'm not saying 
they're wrong. And because I think we need to come with a lens of collaboration with our physicians and our birth providers in general. And, and I tend to see, especially in social media, where there's like this fighting that's starting to happen. And I think that it's not helping anybody because it gets rid of, it creates defensiveness and gets rid of collaboration. But um, yeah, that's kind of the way that I, I tackle it. I love that. And I also love um, kind of what you touched on earlier and it made me think of it again when you were talking there, that individualized approach and really weighing up that risk-benefit analysis because like I was saying, we're not in a research lab, we're in clinic practice and we have real people with real lives and lots of different things going on for everyone. And it's about, you're never going to get someone in who has that clean canvas, who only has one thing contributing to them and we'll just nudge it up. And when you're ready, we have people who suffer with the perinatal mental health if they don't get to do their type of strength training. We get people who have other comorbidities that actually need to be exercising to control those. And there's so many things, even for help and sleep quality, routine, life, just, just all these things, for giving moms that 20, 30 minute break to go and do something that isn't being a mom. Um, I think it's so important. And so I do think that when we start, like any other area, you look at all the pros for doing something, you look at the cons for it and you weigh up, right, well, which is the most beneficial approach to go and you you stick with it. Um, but it's, it's giving the people that autonomy to know their symptoms, as you say, so that they can they become nearly the guide for themselves because another thing that I'm really, I feel quite strongly about in rehabilitation space is that it's very much a partnership with the person coming in and you're giving them the tools and understanding for them to know how to manage themselves. It's not a, you must come to me and I will tell you when you can do this. I, I don't like that passive approach where patients feel like they rely on someone. So my job is to do myself out of a job essentially. And I think that's a really, really powerful place that we can be. What's your thoughts? Yeah. So if we think about evidence-informed practice, it's evidence-based, the clinical practice in the wants and desires of the client that's there. And none of them is bigger than the other. It's like a Venn diagram where evidence-based practice is in the middle and they are overlapping the same amount. So it is such an important tenant of our care. You know, I say to my patients, I was like, when it comes to you and I working together, I am in the passenger seat and you are in the driver's seat. And I'm going to give you, I, I'm going to be your navigation. I'm going to tell you how to turn right. I'm going to tell you how to turn left. I say sometimes I'm a bit of a backseat driver and I'm going to be a bit more aggressive with my recommendation. But when it comes down to it, you're the only one who can turn the car. Like you're the only one that can go left. And I, I speak to that with respect to us being collaborative. I also speak to it with respect to exercise compliance. But, you know, I, we're going to be working together and we're going to be bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, we may get lost, but guess what? We're going to navigate right back. You know, the, the, it just the, the analogy works in so many different ways. And so, you know, having that conversation up front, I think, can really can get rid of some of the threat response, too, because, you know, especially with some of my older clients who have been with the healthcare system for a long time and may have accumulated negative interactions where they don't feel like they're heard. You know, I've had people come into my office and I start asking them and I'm getting like a full blast of their emotional response to healthcare. And I am this representation of healthcare. And like your reaction is like, you almost want to like step back and like, whoa. Um, but you understand, right? Because they've had so many circumstances where they feel like nobody is listening to them. So um, having those kind of conversations can be really helpful. The other thing you said, and kind of this is going to bring up some of the stuff from our study is around how important that risk benefit is, especially in that early postpartum period to get moms to have that 20 to 30%, etc. One of the things in our study that people have said to me is, well, you had 57% of individuals experiencing confidence, and that's really high. So I kind of want to address that because there's a couple of things that my thoughts are around it. So our, our question was, did you ever experience any leaking of urine when in that postpartum period? So that could have been early postpartum. That could have been after return. So that's first thing. Like we, I would expect somebody to pee when they cough, when their vulva is extremely swollen. Um, that is not something that would alarm me, especially in that early postpartum day. Um, we see that, heavy uh, weightlifting and powerlifting about 50% of individuals leak. So now again, we're, we're kind of inching there and then it's going to increase even more if you've had kiddos before. So if you are uh, multi multi Paris and so, and then the other thing is that this is a group of individuals who are pushing their limit, right? I would never 
tell a person who just had a rotator cuff surgery that you're going to take your sling off and you're going to be completely pain-free and you're going to get all of your range of motion immediately, right? But, th- but we expect that of our people after having babies, right? Like you're never going to have any pelvic symptoms if you do it, something to freak out about. Again, like why are we ignoring all of our rehab principles when it comes to pelvic health? Like th- it's the same thing. Like I would never expect anyone after having a tear to not have any symptoms and recover and be totally fine after six weeks. Like, no, we're going to help you navigate those symptoms. We're going to gradually push your thresholds. So that 57% to me is saying like, okay, this is a group of individuals who are pushing their limits. And I'm trying to find where those limits are. You know, I kind of joke and like, I'm not trying to see if you have symptoms. I'm trying to figure out when in that early postpartum period, especially like with our CrossFitters going back to double unders and things like that. We're trying to figure out where that threshold is for so many, in especially early postpartum, we're trying to figure out what they can handle in that moment. I think that's a really good point to bring up. And it's also the fact that you're right, because the majority of, we think of recreational exercises, the majority of women will stop themselves and withdraw from um, physical activity or that level of physical activity if they feel fear of or have experienced a leak. So they'll not continue it. So the stats that we often have are are not representative of real world again, if you know what I mean, because we've already had the drop-offs and they now do a lesser activity that doesn't make them leak because that's comfortable and that's better. And nobody wants to identify as a leaker because there's so many contextual factors to this too, because even when we're looking at athlete research and things, Athletes don't want to, athletes are strong, really representative people. They are doing fantastic things and and they have that identity. They don't want to be labeled as the leaker oftentimes. So there's so many levels to this with even data collection. And um, I think it was Elizabeth Colton Quinn's um, study. No, it wasn't. It was someone else's. There was a study that kind of had done a systematic review and looked at different things. But anyway, women were denied urinary incontinence on... um, validated questionnaires but in conversation we're like oh well yeah well obviously like a leak a little bit with whatever so it's also the context of how we're asking the questions because someone doesn't want to label and commit to well no I don't I wouldn't say I have urinary incontinence all the time but they might have exercise related urinary incontinence and that's the issue is that really until lately and we're waiting for the validation of that um PFD sentinel but there's been nothing that has been really exercise specific in terms of flagging pelvic floor symptoms. So a lot of the um, validated measures I've used in my studies have not captured the true level that I wanted to be captured because they ask about everyday activities and things. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, and we're starting to see the term athletic incontinence come up in the yeah. literature as well, right? Where, you know, a lot of my power lifters, they don't leak when they cough or sneeze. But when their deadlift hits over 275, then they start leaking. So again, they wouldn't identify as having urinary incontinence because in their day-to-day life, it doesn't, it's not something that they think about. It's not something that they worry about. It is something that they experience during their sport. And that is, that's the interesting part. I think that kind of subgroup under that stress urinary incontinence of athletic incontinence is going to we don't, again, we don't have any validated measures and that's kind of a, a next step, but it, it's going to capture more people because, and then like the same thing, like I see some people who can, you know, run and have no problems where we, you know, we have some questions about impact, but it's a lifting problem for them. And, but, or flip, like somebody can lift heavy weights and it's not a problem, but as soon as they run more than a mile, they're either working on urge suppression or they're having leaking or they don't even know that they're they're peeing. Like all those kind of symptoms can come up with postpartum runners. Unreal. Again, back to the individual. And as you said, the key, the key principles that we know throughout rehabilitation keep coming back. And again, it's nearly like we nearly need to have an intervention internationally in pelvic health where we go back to basics. This is what strengthening a muscle means. <laughs> this yeah. is what we should do. We should do an intervention, a global intervention. Oh. Oh my gosh, I talk about it all the time about, you know, we do not, well, one, I think that pelvic health is a set of muscles, it should at least be a a universal basic competency of of PT. So we're not going to just forget about one set of muscles, because we don't do that. Like, you know, like, that's kind of what I don't, I don't touch that area. So we're not, we're not going to talk about it. Um, I think that's not doing your due diligence, like, especially with low back pain, groin pain, hip pain, 
you're, you're just going to ignore one part because you don't label as a pelvic floor specialist. But then for our pelvic PTs, we need to, even if we're specializing in, in the trenches of just pelvic health, where your clients are just having pelvic issues, they tend to be referred for just pelvic. I don't even want to use the word just pelvic because oftentimes they're also having hip pain or they're also having low back pain. And so you, you have to, again, we, we know so much more. Like I talk to my new pelvic PTs when they're taking our courses and things. And I say to them, like, you know, so much more than you think you do because all of the concepts that you do every single day for somebody's back or somebody's knee, you're going to use the same thing for somebody experiencing pelvic issues. And the internal is a tool in our toolbox. It is not our toolbox. It does not replace all of our other tools. And it is the only thing that's there. It's something that will leverage to give us some information, but it's not something that I use all the time. And it's not something that I feel like I have to use to be able to treat a person. It's interesting because actually I was talking to a patient about this this morning, about how I got into pelvic health. And I always thought, you know, I went in with a sports physio hat on that I wanted to be a sports physio and that's all sports MSK. That was my, what I wanted. And I, as a junior physio in the UK, we were put around six monthly rotations, just involuntary scheduled round to get your experience up. And I got the short straw and I ended up going to the maternity hospital and tried to swap out and do everything and was thinking this was the biggest waste. And I went and was like, oh my goodness, it's like musculoskeletal sports physio, but just for this area that nobody talks about. I was like, so that's how I got, I got interested in it then, hadn't had the kids yet. Um, so it was really bizarre. I remember at the time it being a really weird thing that I even wanted to specialize in this area because it was uncool at that time. Pretty cool now. Ha ha. <laughs> you know? Pretty cool now. <laughs> I know. It's a hot topic now. <laughs> ha ha. To all those people who laughed at me going into pelvic floor back then. Who's yeah, laughing? Absolutely. Yeah, who's <laughs> laughing for sure. And now, now you're doing a PhD in the same area. So. Oh my gosh. So um, that's what I wanted to talk about because you've done, I don't even know where to start with you, Stina, because you've got that many facets, okay? <laughs> I'm like, where are we going? You're, you've got the barbells, mama. You work for Ice Physio? Yep. Tell us about Ice Physio because I haven't mentioned that yet. Yeah, so Ice Physio, we are a continuing education company. That's why I was in the U.S. And we teach a pelvic course, two-day live course, and then we teach an online course. So our two-day live course teaches the basics of the internal. So in supine and in standing. So we teach how to assess in standing and how to go through, for example, bracing strategies to see if individuals are bearing down as they brace. Like you can get a lot of information by being internal and then asking them to brace like they have a heavy barbell on their back. And like, you know, if that finger gets spit out, like you kind of know how their bracing strategy is. And then we bridge that to early rehab. So C-section scar uh, rehab, uh, uh, pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. And then we go into the gym and teach return to impact, return to gymnastics, return to heavy lifting and get individuals experiencing all of these different bracing and breast strategies and how their bodies feel and how we can modify around pregnancy. And um, it's super fun to be able to, to take Again, like we, we teach the basics of the internal, like this is the information you need to gather, but then this is how we implement. This is how we treat it. This is how we take that information and get individuals back to heavy lifting or double unders or running or picking up their kids or getting on the floor and playing with them or, um, you know, all these things, walking your dog when your dog pulls and all of a sudden you're experiencing leaking when they're having that pulling. Um, all of those things were kind of, we're trying to create that bridge. And then our online course kind of narrows in on the pregnancy postpartum literature and is our live course is very lab focused. Our online course is very research focused around theoretical concepts and frameworks to get individuals back to movement. Love that. I've linked the links in the show notes for everyone. So if anyone's interested, check them out. In terms of research, so you mentioned that you're collabing with uh, Margaret Davenport. And what's next? Because you've done the PhD. You're in this lovely space. Like you're back in. You're hungry. I can tell you're, you're not stopping. You're going. No, I know. As I was getting into post-PhD life, I realized that I couldn't not have research as a part of my life. And I also realized that there's a lot of clinicians who are doing a really wonderful job of like pushing the narrative. But what we need is clinician scientists. I feel like this like unique knowledge translation mobilization conduit because I kind of speak in both worlds. Sometimes I speak in the clinician world better than the research world. I got to work <laughs> on that. But um, my my ultimate goal is to try and create just like you said, this lifespan approach of the intersection between physical function 
pelvic floor dysfunction and high load resistance training. So we did a little bit of work in my PhD started some safety feasibility data in individuals at risk for frailty, individuals experiencing issues with activities of daily living, mobility, disability. And then uh, Margie and I did uh, some exploration around high load resistance training during pregnancy. So her and I are going to keep working together. I'm working on a systematic review with her looking at the state of the literature around resistance training. And then we're going to try and do some prospective data taking where we get individuals who are trying to get pregnant and follow them forward. But a lot of people oh, need to so realize exciting. about this lifespan approach because then because of the other side that I want to keep exploring is menopause doing the same thing. Nice. And so how do we kind of create this? And but what people need to understand is that this research takes time. Like, you know, that cross-sectional study took over a year to get together between ethics and then generating the survey, getting people to take the survey, analyzing it, manuscript, manuscript to review, review comes back, revisions to review, you know, all these things. And then, you know, it just it takes time. So we're gonna we're gonna keep working on it, but we 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 need to just kind of recognize that these things are going, they are working like, you know, Carrie's lab is working on stuff and Ingrid and Janet are working on stuff and Linda McQueen is working on stuff and Margie is working on stuff. And like, we, we have these researchers that are, they're doing it, but, but we need to, to give them the time to get some of that research. And hopefully if you're listening to this, help disseminate that. Like it, mm-hmm. when research studies are coming in, we need, we rely so heavily and we are so thankful for the people who come into these studies and take these surveys and, you know, they're, they're just so integral to this research happening. Absolutely. I have like two minutes. Okay. Go. No, we're going to go. Um, that's fantastic. I'm going to put all the links in. Because, you know, I could talk to you all day. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of questions, they will find you. I'll put your handle for Instagram and everything. So if anyone wants to reach out, say hi, follow her content. Her Instagram's great. Um, but we'll get you. I'll be getting you back on down the line when we need to figure out what you found out and what we what we know next. So uh, maybe we'll get you and Margie on together sometime in the future. That would be amazing. Yeah, and I'll see you at ICS. Oh yeah, I'm going to see you at ICS. Yes, can't wait. I'm um, looking forward to that. Need to do my slides. Haha. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> okay, and, and Emma will be back next time. So I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs> What a great episode to end season five on. Thank you so much, Gronya and Christina, for that really insightful conversation. Isn't it really exciting to hear about all the research that's being carried out around exercise during and after pregnancy? Certainly as clinicians, it's really important that we're hearing these conversations so that we can better improve the services that we offer to the perinatal population. Thank you to you for tuning in to season five. We hope you've enjoyed it. There are plenty more episodes from seasons one to four. So if you haven't yet tuned into those seasons, please do so. We really, really value your feedback and of course reviews. So if you have any feedback or if you have any topics that you'd like to hear discussed, then please do let us know. We are on Instagram at at your cervix underscore the podcast so please do feedback to us and if you have a moment to leave a review it really can make such a huge difference Um, so thank you to you for listening and we really look forward to speaking to you more soon